Hello, and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Deeply Technical series. Hello, welcome to Codish. I am Julian Duque, Developer Advocate here at Heroku, and today we will bring you a community-focused episode. Recently, I had the opportunity to speak at NodeConfU, the main conference in Europe for the Node.js community, hosted at the beautiful city of Kilkenny in Ireland. I was able to chat with different members of the community that also spoke at the conference, and wanted to capture some of the conversations to share them with our Kurdish audience. We compiled three different conversations into this one episode. We will learn from Alex Koshikov about building CLI applications with Ocliv and TypeScript. Tierney Siren will tell us how to build open source communities and some of the lessons learned by leading the community committee at the Node.js project. Chris Dickinson will share the work he has been doing on a new shiny project, Entropic, a federated package registry for Node.js and JavaScript. With me, I have Alex Koshikov, which is going to be talking about how to build CLI tools using Ocliv and TypeScript. So hello, Alex, how are you doing? Hi, Julian, it's, it's good. N nice to meet you here. It's actually a big surprise to meet someone from Heroku in a NodeConf. So, Alex, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm Alex Korzhikov. Exactly, pronunciation is correct. Uh, yeah, I'm an engineer at uh, ING Bank. It's a huge bank. Uh, it's uh, originally from Netherlands. Uh, and uh, I'm working there for three years, so living in uh, in Netherlands already four or five years. And uh, I was uh, mostly my career uh, with the JavaScript. So I started with JavaScript professionally. And uh, nowadays, I also do in JavaScript within the bank. Oh, nice, nice. And what type of applications are you building in the bank with JavaScript? Yeah, so uh, it's actually uh, quite uh, quite nice. I'm uh, I'm a part of a pipeline uh, support uh, system uh, in a bank. So we are building a pipeline for front-end applications, which we have a lot in the bank, you can imagine. So Alex was giving a workshop here at NodeConf Europe about like building uh, CLI applications using Ocliv and TypeScript. And for the people that doesn't know, and for the listeners out there, uh, Ocliv is a framework library to build up CLI tools that was originally created uh, here at Heroku. And that's pretty much the technology that it's being used for our Heroku CLI and also for SFDX, which is the Salesforce uh, CLI tool. So Alex, can you tell me a little bit more why you decided to, to do a workshop around Ocliv and TypeScript? Are you using it for your projects? So uh, basically we consider different tools. We, uh, and uh, the idea originally was to overview different uh, landscape uh, over the CLI. So we, uh, we uh, did some experiments with uh, Commander.js, with Glugan, with uh, Vorpal, and uh, with a natural uh, JavaScript CLI thingy. Yeah, we indeed stopped uh, with uh, Ocliv. I think it's, um, because it's the first choice, uh, in my opinion, with a CLIs nowadays. Well, uh, yeah, I, I can uh, tell a little more about uh, why uh, why it's TypeScript uh, because it's supporting TypeScript. That's the first one, but also I think it's super powerful and uh, it's 
it's so easy to uh, write a simple application in Oakleaf. Uh, yeah, it it actually took me just two hours to make a workshop CLI for for exactly this workshop. So Node.js has been known as a technology for building web applications, but you can see Node.js out in the wild, not only for web, but for desktop applications using platforms like Electrum. But it has taken a lot of usage out there by building CLI tools. So Oakleaf helps you to create like CLI tools in an easy way, as Alex was mentioning. And I'm a little bit curious, what do you, what do you cover at the workshop you were giving here? What type of things and best practices best practices you were teaching to your attendees all right uh, so uh, indeed uh, the idea first was uh, to over you to try different technologies but uh, in the end we actually had to cut and cut materials so uh, nowadays uh, workshop consists of uh, we start with uh, basics we st we start with doing just a simple CLI with just JavaScript package JSON npm and uh, that's it basically then we uh, do a slight more uh, functionality inside so parse flags and for that we also need to um, to cover like you know process.argv and and so on and then we actually introduce typescript to the project so we try to migrate this javascript application to typescript and that's a first run of typescript in the in the workshop and after that we do uh, all the all the rest exercises with just Oakleaf itself so i'm i'm curious about one thing why using typescript to create a cli application what are the benefits behind it well, uh, in my opinion, yeah, TypeScript uh, now now is kind of almost the first choice for uh, for um, uh, let's say community-driven uh, tools and uh, libraries. Uh, so the if you if you need uh, lots of collaborations for your tooling, if it's open source. Or if you predict that someone will uh, actually make merge requests to your project, I think TypeScript can help a lot with that. Like if you have strict types and you have strict protocols, so it's easier for developers just to use, uh, to consume your code and to not make too many mistakes on it and actually to, uh, to use it uh, much, much easier. That's a great point. I have seen lately TypeScript being used a lot on library development specifically for that purpose. You can enforce types, you can enforce like the method signatures, and it's going to open a lot of doors for people that want to contribute to your project. And it is good to see it also on CLI applications. Can you tell me a little bit more about the benefits of using a tool like Oakleaf by building CLI tools? What, what are the type of features that Oakleaf is offering you mm -hmm. while mm -hmm. doing your work? Well, uh, at some point, I think Oakleaf is uh, quite simple to use. So uh, actually, it doesn't have uh, so many abstractions to uh, to manipulate with. Uh, for example, it, it has uh, hooks, it has uh, uh, commands, plugins. Yeah, I cannot name uh, too much more. I think uh, that's, uh, yeah, maybe a few m more abstractions uh, that's uh, inside the framework itself. But uh, generally, with these abstractions like commands, plugins, and uh, hooks, and uh, then you can uh, you can actually build your application on top of them easily. And then, um, yeah, using these classes, uh, doing the OOP with them uh, properly, uh, it's it's really easy to construct a CLI. It, it can uh, it can comprehend all all the needs that uh, your customer uh, would would how how they want to use your, your CLI and so on. In terms of developer experience and user experience, what things do I need to be aware while building CLIs? What are going to be the recommendations to make a CLI tool that is going to be 
easy to use and intuitive to use for, for our user. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's uh, also a part of our workshop. So we start with this uh, theory pieces or something like that. So we uh, we introduce some basic principles, which, by the way, Oakleaf is also uh, is following quite a lot. And we uh, learned a lot from the articles provided by by Heroku, from by Oakleaf. Uh, yeah, so basically, I think uh, the user not shouldn't be stuck with your tooling and that's uh, why you need a why you need help messages version uh, from flex on and so on and uh, auto documentation of course and uh, here on the workshop we heard uh, already good uh, tips for example to um, auto completion which uh, Oakleaf has a, a plugin for and um, yeah things like that I think are you using uh, this stack Oakleaf and TypeScript at your regular day job uh, yeah, actually, we have a product. It's it's internal for the bank. We uh, we build it uh, indeed on uh, Oakleaf itself. So uh, we uh, split all the functionality into plugins, and now uh, we also wrapped it in a Docker image. So it is enable uh, is available for our customers of our front end pipeline. Let's say like that. Oh, amazing! And since Oakleaf supports plugin development, it's also enabling you and your organization to have like cross collaboration with other teams yeah yeah exactly it, it happens like that yeah so we have a lot of merge requests because uh, yeah we our team is uh, also is um, should provide uh, like uh, other products let's say like that uh, yeah I don't want to dig into much uh, in, sure, into sure. details yeah but uh, in general yeah we are we are really waiting for merge requests and there where TypeScript helps and Oakleaf helps as well so for the people out there that didn't have the opportunity to be at the conference uh, and at your workshop, do they have uh, the opportunity to see that material or that content if they want to follow the workshop themselves, if it's online? Uh, yeah, exactly. So uh, the workshop itself is available on a CLI uh, at uh, en ts.dev so um, or, or my github corsior.github.io is the same uh, same address uh, and and indeed we have some references for like uh, for further reading let's say like that and uh, to be honest many of them are just articles by Oakleaf like a 12 factor CLI if I'm not mistaken also was another article uh, the evolution of Heroku CLI which uh, which I think is uh, is amazing material but also my wish is uh, to to have even more knowledge on that because it doesn't doesn't explain let's say like everything in details like it it, uh, it uh, provides you lots of questions to to think about that's uh, that's great uh yeah that's uh, that's about uh, CLIs and Oakleaf I think you can find a lot in a Heroku blog for that but uh, for TypeScript itself yeah I also uh, suggest uh, some materials in there uh, I think the the, the my, my last finding is uh, the full the complete guide to TypeScript it's available on Udemy, uh, udemy.com, I think, yeah, it's 24 hours and a half of TypeScript. So if you like uh, all kind of examples of where to use TypeScript and how to use OOP with TypeScript, that's where you can find. Oh, that's amazing. I, I guess our listeners are going to love to, to follow your workshop and to take a look at those resources. So we are going to make sure those are going to be listed in the description of this episode. So for the listeners out there, you can also learn from the experiences that Alex had and what he shared here at NodeConf EU. I'm with my friend Tierney Siren. He's a senior cloud developer advocate at Microsoft, uh, working for the Azure Cloud. And he's also part of the Node.js project 
as a chairperson for the community committee. Today, he's going to be talking about how to build a successful open source communities and some lessons learned that they have been having like, by building communities for a while. So, Tierney, if you want to introduce yourself more and tell us a little bit more about what you are doing, please, this is the right time. Yeah, so as Julian, as Julian said, uh, I am a developer advocate at Microsoft. Uh, I'm on the open source engineering team, so I get to spend most of my time on open source work, you know, and that takes on various forms. Uh, I spend a non-trivial amount of time on Node. Uh, I also do work in some work in Electron uh, and TC39 as well every two months and GitHub issues as well. Um, oh, nice. And then I also do some of my own projects like DLice and LibLice and Good First Issue and other things like that, um, that I'm able to kind of help fill gaps that I see in the open source community. So it seems you keep yourself busy. Yeah, maybe a little too busy. Oh, but that's good, that's good. That's good, having something to do that you are passionate about yeah. it. And that's one of the things that got me into uh, working with the community was because I was very passionate about it, like being able to empower other developers and other people, being able to offer channel, channels to them to to educate themselves, to give them training and sharing knowledge. It's uh, something super rewarding. So I want to hear more about your experiences and what got you into working with communities. But before that, uh, what is an open source community, if you can define that for us? So it's a really good question. I've given this, the talk I'm giving here at NodeConf.eu a few times, and every time I try to ask uh, you know, my Twitter followers that, uh, what is an open source community? And every time I get very different answers from them. Everyone kind of has their own definition of what, it, uh, what an open source community is to them. And uh, so you know, to me at least, it's everything outside of the code. So um, internationalization, uh, documentation, uh, diversity and inclusivity work, policy and governance, like all of that stuff is governance plus so, so much more. Um, and generally I found that the people who are, you know, responding to my tweets, you know, when I ask this, generally are kind of defining something within open source that's outside of the code as open source community. What got you into into open source communities? What was your, your first experience and what got you into the Node.js community in a specific? Uh, so my first experience, uh, when I was a teenager, I used to, to play uh, RuneScape. Oh, and yeah. uh, there were clans and I wanted to make a forum for one. So I got involved in a forum system. I, you know, I was looking around for a way to make a forum and I found a forum system. It was an open source forum system called MyBB. Yep. And, uh, I became more interested in the forum system than I was in the game. So I just spent more and more time doing forums than I did games. Um, and so I got more and more involved in my BB and that was the first kind of interaction I had with open source. Um, it was a relatively slow moving open source project. That's actually why I ended up kind of departing it and going to Node. Right around the time of the IOJS fork, I was getting a little tired of like how the, the pace at which they were able to move. Um, and so I was, you know, digging into Node a bit, and found this post from uh, Michael Rogers, saying, you know, we've shipped 1.0 of IOJS, and we also need help, including in non-technical ways. And um, that specific line, that like sentence of include, like we welcome non-technical contributions, was super important to me because I still wasn't really confident in my ability to write JavaScript or contribute to Node or IOJS in any meaningful way. But there was a website. And the website had content. I could help contribute content. I could help contribute blog posts. There was the IOJS uh, Medium account. 
Um, and so I ended up doing that and contributing in that way. And that's actually how I met you. That's that's true. And <laughs> uh, Tierney and myself have a have an history. We used to work together, and we met at the Node.js community pretty much. Yep. And we were like super lucky to have uh, Tierney working at uh, other team uh, where I was working previously. So, what have you learned by building open source communities, and and especially with the Node.js community yep. that has been experiencing these uh, these lot of changes? Yeah, so there's, you know, I, I go over this in my talk a bit, but there, there's kind of four key things I've learned. One of the things I've learned uh, was don't build too much. And I learned this both from Node and from IBB, um, where, you know, building out too much infrastructure and too much, uh, you know, structure to how you approach things before there's a community there to fill it ends up being a little burdensome to that community. And it actually hampers the growth of, you know, your potential ecosystem, or if you have one already, you're kind of guiding it in your own way rather than how the community wants to guide it. So it's an important thing to be able to go ahead and like let your community drive itself rather than you driving it. I think that's very much true of how Node before IOJS and the merge back was, is that it was, you know, a few people driving it uh, in a very specific direction, and it was their vision, not the ecosystem's vision and not the community's vision of it. So it is better if the community is organic pretty much at the yeah. beginning, organic, getting interest from people. And after you have like something established, start establishing like the boundaries, like the governance or, or, or the different things that are going to make that community successful. Yeah, for sure. And then the next one I kind of learned was uh, about empowering contributors, right? So you actually have to give people trust and you have to believe in them. Um, and you have to like act on that, not just you doing it, but you have to actually take the action of empowering them by giving them commit access or uh, you know, giving them elevated responsibility as they kind of continue contributing. Um, and so there's one thing that I, I like to consistently refer to, which is open open source. Uh, I believe you can view it at openopensource.com. Uh, but it's basically just a, a kind of little bit of guidance around how you can kind of build out uh, an empowered community by when someone comes around, just give them commit access. You give them that trust when they contribute to your project. And so, you know, that's something that I think is super powerful in how we've approached Node in that basically anyone can come around and if they contribute, we'll, they'll be a part of the project at that yeah, point. And it makes you feel uh, an owner of the project yep. too, that you are like part of the project, yep. not just like an external contributor, but you are like just part of the project. Yeah. The next thing I kind of have learned through helping build open source communities along the way has been accepting help. Um, it's been a thing that I struggle with. I end up being a person who just kind of goes and does things and like ignores process and just gets it done. And that itself is super burdensome, but also there's people there who have additional context who are super helpful um, and generally willing to help if they're a part of the project. Um, and also like, it's easy to burn out in open source. Um, oh. There's an endless amount of things to do, especially if you are you know, in the leadership of a project, it's relatively challenging to not kind of carry that with you always and feel obligated to continuously do that, even you know, once your workday is done or once your, the time you set aside to do open source is done. So it seems that you, you, you have also experience from burn out. Can you tell us? Indeed I do. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what brought you to to being born out by contributing to a community yeah. and how you uh, overcome that or what? Yeah. 
so for context, uh, I'm currently chairperson of the community committee. Uh, and the worst burnout I've ever had was when I was previously chairperson of the community committee in Node. There's a lot of work that comes with like positions like this. And it's not really like I'm making big decisions. It's more of I'm helping other people find success. So I become a manager, basically. My time doing this is mostly spent on ensuring other people's barriers are lowered, that there's nothing blocking them from doing what they want to do, and uh, making sure that you know uh, our community and our ecosystem is a very welcoming place and that I can help others find success. It's challenging doing that because that's very draining, especially when you're helping people around the world. Um, you know, we are not limited to the U.S. or U.S. friendly time zones. Uh, and so that is like a tiresome thing in terms of just how much effort you have to put in. Um, and that's not like a commentary on why you shouldn't do it, but it is something that you should definitely try to protect yourself from a bit. And like, I'm not good at setting up barriers for myself or like telling people no. So that's something that I end up having to, I ended up having to learn was being able to say no and kind of push back, um, or understand when things weren't necessarily urgent. Um, and be able to kind of address them when I will not be burnt out. Yeah, I think in, in, in open source, uh, the hardest challenge is people. Yep. The, the big challenge is not technical. I mean, the code and the technical aspects can be fixed and they are solvable. But dealing with, with the people, it's something super complex. What are other challenges that you have uh, seen uh, while working at open source uh, communities? One of the biggest challenges that I've seen, uh, it's, it's an interesting one because it's basically being willing to say you're wrong as a community. Um, so one thing that in Node we've moved to do a lot better is uh, refactor our governance and how we kind of run the project more rapidly and more willingly. Um, it, we used to kind of really stick to the same process we had, and it was like, this is the process we need to kind of get through all the steps. But sometimes that wasn't necessarily necessary. Um, and so, you know, refactoring your own direction actually can be a super healthy thing. And that's one thing that is a very challenging thing to do because it's an admission that you're wrong. Um, and it's an admission that you need to do better and you haven't been doing perfect. Uh, but it's also like that is the state of being human and that's how, you know, we exist in open source. Like you said, humans are the hardest part of open source. And so we have to be refactoring how we approach humans in the same way we refactor how we approach code. Yeah. And I think also communication. Yep. It's going to be one of the biggest challenges. Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, communicating effectively is uh, a super important thing to be able to actually uh be an, a welcome and inclusive community. One of the challenges I face in Node and that you know I think many of us in, end up engaging with is that uh, the only blessed platform for discussion in Node is uh, GitHub. That's the only like official medium outside of the Node Dev IRC, um, which is mostly used by a few core folks. Most of the people in Node don't really go outside of GitHub, but there's not really a way to like direct message people on GitHub. And there's not really a way to like talk with people on GitHub um, outside of issues. Um, and so that introduces an issue where people have different things they use. You know, in China, WeChat is super popular. Um, in Europe, WhatsApp is super popular. 
I use Twitter DMs a lot. Like I will respond to Twitter DMs within five minutes usually. So, and some people just like email. So like as someone in a leadership position, as someone building a community or trying to help enable a community to build itself, going to where people are and being willing to kind of compromise your own comfort for someone else's um, helps build a more uh, welcoming and stable community. So obviously like building communities and a community as massive as the the Node.js one has a lot of challenges, but what are the good parts, like the rewards or the personal gratification that you get by being involved in the community and having like a responsibility and leadership role in the community? So tell us a little bit more about those uh, rewards. The the biggest reward is seeing other people succeed, like seeing other people uh, become impactful and become contributors and become like, truly vital to a project is so, so, so amazing. Um, that's the best part of anything I get to do is just seeing other folks succeed. Um, and especially, you know, it's especially rewarding when I got to play a part somehow in that success. In terms of personal success, I don't really get a ton out of it. Like it's not something that I benefit directly from. And I think that's super important to know going into open source is it's like, it's not for you. Folks who go into open source uh, wanting to personally benefit or like become a rock star or something like that aren't gonna find success and they're not gonna end up being happy with their contributions that time spent on that. It's more of a community focused thing. And it's something that um, if that seems rewarding to you, um, helping other people, finding others' success, and uh, you know, building something that others use, that is incredibly important. And you know, even on that last one, um, I do want to add that one of the most incredible, wonderful things I get to see is like the bizarre ways people use Node. Um, and like, because I go to events and I'm able to in- enabled to do that, I get to see um, some really, really interesting uses of Node. And that itself is also incredibly valuable in that. I get to see uh, ways that Node is enabling folks to do things that would have been extremely challenging and much higher barrier um, if Node didn't exist and wasn't continuing to kind of evolve and grow. Do you have any recommendations to folks that are trying to build or to be part of an open source community? My biggest recommendation would be to find something that you are really passionate about and feel like you could spend 10 years working on. Today, I had the honor to be speaking with Chris Dickinson. Chris Dickinson is working on a new package managed system for Node.js and JavaScript, which has got a lot of traction in the community and the problem they are solving is very interesting. So we are going to be speaking today about it. So Chris, uh, please tell us what you do. Uh, Currently, I work as a staff engineer at Ease Technologies, uh, LLC. I previously worked at NPM as a registry engineer for the last four years and uh, worked on Node Core uh, before that. So some overlap there. I was on the TSC for a bit. You're not part of the Node project right now? Uh, no, eventually I had to like put down those duties to focus on the NPM registry job. So Okay, so very involved in Node community, not only in the core project, but in the whole ecosystem, which is NPM. Uh, I, I have a question for you. What is Entropic? I mean, it has been like very trendy lately, but a lot of people doesn't know it. So can you explain a little bit more what it's Entropic and the motivation behind it, the type of problems 
you are trying to solve? Over the course of the last year or so, um, we, we've had kind of a rocky time. NPM personally had kind of a rocky time. Um, the thing that we ran into uh, is that being the sole operator of the uh, centralized package registry, NPM has a lot of power. But NPM is also a VC-backed company, and so um, it is primarily a financial instrument. So there are people with money that invested in the company, and eventually they're going to expect more money out of the company. Right now, that means uh, the, the company is in good hands. The, the, the people working there are uh, good stewards of the registry, but they may not always be the stewards of the registry. So I left NPM this year um, and uh, joined up with Siege, uh, CJ Silverio, right after that because we were both concerned about uh, the, the state of package management. We were kind of concerned about the fact that like, no matter when you have a centralized uh, registry, like no matter who uh, is operating it, whether that's a single company or a foundation, it kind of concentrates power into the hands of like very few people. And what we were thinking uh, would be a good solution to this problem was, was to federate this, kind of to swing back away from centralization towards federation, sort of the earlier days of the internet and make more people the operators of the registry. This also has the happy effect of uh, spreading the cost of operating the registry across many people instead of uh, just a single company or foundation. For an example of like the, the sort of costs that running a centralized reg registry incurs, like you may be familiar with like the changes that went into NPM CLI to uh, make caching more efficient. Yeah. While that helps on a like individual developer level, um, you get systems like uh, Travis CI or um, GitHub Actions or something like that, where there is no persistent cache between runs. And so every time somebody cuts a new change and uh, tests it and runs npm install, that always hits the registry. And there's only one registry, so there's a concentration of costs. I mean, it's a distributed system, so if you divide and conquer and distribute, it's going to be like a a better way to solve that problem. Yes, I, I can I can see that centralization might be a big problem, especially for something as big as NPM, which is the largest package ecosystem in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's larger than the Ruby ecosystem, the Perl, which was like also big back in the days, even the Linux one that has like a, a lot of packages, NPM, uh, how many packages has NPM right now, the, MP the NPM registry? Uh, when I started, um, we were doing something like 500,000 requests a week or something like that. Um, and by the time I left, it was during a weekday, a billion requests a day. Wow. So um, that's a lot of traffic. And like the, the, the disk storage space is one thing, but like just the um, cost of uh, bandwidth there is another thing entirely. How are you solving that issue? like that decentralization because yes right now there is just one registry and you can like easily install by using npm on another client that supports that registry but what are the things that you are doing to be able to have a federated registry mm -hmm. and be also compatible with the current ecosystem because i i guess that the idea is not to break the ecosystem and have like a way different thing mm -hmm. but something that can like work and interact with what we currently have yeah so how are you solving that problem so the idea is that um there will be multiple entropic instances like you'll be able to bring up your own entropic instance for example um my i could run a personal like registry.neversaw.us entropic instance just for myself and publish packages there 
Whenever anyone starts depending on one of those packages on their own Entropic instance, uh, those packages will be mirrored over once to that new other instance. So you kind of have the packages mirrored on use. Um, this means that uh, we can actually enforce too that like packages don't really go away, so you don't get into a situation like uh, like leftpad um, where like a, a core dependency gets uh, unpublished. And you had to worry about this a lot more in a, in a decentralized system because, for example, like I could let the uh, registration of neversaw.us slip, and uh, you know my entropic instance would suddenly go offline. And you want to make sure that my packages are still available to the people using them. The way that we're kind of uh, su supporting, I'm going to call them le legacy packages, but um, the existing ecosystem packages, yes. there is a namespace within each Entropic instance called legacy. And so you have essentially a portal back to NPM. The idea being that you can say, I depend on like legacy slash lodash from my registry.neversaw.us. And that will automatically mirror in the packages from NPM. Um, at that point, like you have those available to you, um, we can do a uh, stale while revalidate occasionally on that to pull in new versions. But the idea is generally that, like, um, because we're we're storing these in a content addressable fashion, if two entropic instances like registry.eversaw.us and registry.entropic.dev both pull down Lodash, the, the the contents will be deduplicated, so it won't be like you're storing really that much more information for. Uh, that, if I understand correctly, anybody can has its own registry, even if it's a company or an individual, right? Mm -hmm. How to prevent a bad actor creating like an entropic registry and like tampering with the packages to do like some malicious things? They are like, what, what are the security and the trust story behind entropic right now to prevent these type of things? So the way that we're doing this right now is we're using. Um, uh, public key cryptography. The, the idea behind this being that we can verify the identity of the uh, author and uh, signing registry. So whenever you spin up an entropic instance, it will uh, have a public and private key pair. When you first mirror between two entropic instances, we will consult with a uh, ledger of known entropic instances and their public keys. And we'll say, okay, um, please try to sign this this content like we'll give them like a nonce or something and if they can sign it and it their advertised public key also matches that ledger's public key then we know that that uh entropic hasn't been tampered with oh nice so it can we we can verify that it's, it continues to be the same thing it's a very um very much patterned off of like ssh's uh trust on first use um pattern where you the first time you ssh in, you might have seen this before where you yep. get like trust this host and it's a problem that hasn't been solved yet in NPM, like the signing of packages. Because mm -hmm. I have seen like a, a lot of discuss discussions in the community how to solve, how to properly solve the problem, and it is not an easy problem to yeah. solve. Yeah. So you, you already have like the solution in the traffic. That's <laughs> at least part of it. Um, we have the server signing in place. We don't quite have the author signing in place because we're building out the client at the same time. Um, we can kind of like it's fluid enough that we can start to uh, tweak different solutions based on what we see pop up. One one interesting thing is that uh, the NPM registry does also sign package contents, so we could potentially use that um, to verify, for example, that when you pull down a legacy package, you know, it matches oh, to some degree. Okay, what are the main challenges the project is having right now? So the main challenges the project is having right now are 
attention from maintainers. So we all have day, day jobs in the core maintainer team. So we're, we're working out how to best uh, set healthy boundaries both for ourselves and the project, and then figuring out a cadence for communication to make sure that like we're pushing forward concretely on the work that needs to be done, that, that, that furthers us to the goal of making it possible for anybody to spin up a Entropic instance cheaply um, so that we can actually invert the cost, uh, invert the relationship between growth of registry and cost of supporting that registry ecosystem. The second uh, challenge is uh, we are covering some new ground, at least to, new to us ground. Um, so if anybody's uh, really familiar with distributed ledgers, uh, that's something that we're looking into right now. Um, we were originally going to have a centralized notary service like Go, but we um, kind of consider this to be like enough, a valuable enough uh, attack surface area, and uh, the project is sort of, sort of still nascent. Uh, that we wouldn't feel super comfortable saying like, oh yes, these three maintainers and their part-time maintain this very valuable attack service. So we want to go with something that is like actually a, a, a distributed ledger that is, doesn't provide a vector for attack. So I, I imagine as an open source project, you are open and looking for contributors. Oh yes. So um, how, how people can start like contributing to the project? There are like special areas that yeah. requires more attention right now? So the best place right now to go is we have a project board on GitHub. It is the only like org level project board in the Entropic Dev org. Um, and that sort of lists out the, the decisions and work left to be done. In the near term future, uh, we want to move our uh, actual Entropic.dev website that's sort of like the brochure page for the project over to a GitHub static site. Um, and if anybody's interested in helping out with that, that would be super useful. We're also working on the package manifest format, the uh, entropic.toml. So what that involves is specking out like all the functionality that we want to see in that, in that format. This is a super crucial bit to get right because it means that we can start building the client and the registry in parallel instead of having to do things in lockstep. If I don't have like maybe the technical skills or or I can't contribute directly to the open source project, is is there a way for individuals or companies to back the project like financially or donating infrastructure? Do you have like something in place to receive support from individuals and companies right now? Uh, not presently. We're working on uh, opening up an open collective um, and we'll post about that on our GitHub issue tracker. Uh, when we have that uh, all sorted out. I think for the time being, the, 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 the best way to support the project is to keep an eye out for announcements like the Open Collective. If you are interested in building out the brochure website, if you are interested in becoming an operator or uh, have spare instances uh, sitting around and an interest in running some Terraform and Kubernetes or eventually some Lambdas, that's an excellent way to support the project as well, um, where the, the, the big next step for the project is to start spinning up extra instances so we can really test out the, the protocol for syncing between them. And uh, I really believe in this community, and I think we can uh, take JavaScript to the stars together. Thank you for listening, Codish, and stay tuned for more content about NodeConf EU. We are going to be releasing a couple more episodes that due to its length, they are going to be released as individual episode, each one. So stay tuned for more information about what happened at NodeConf EU.
Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish Podcast. Codish is produced by Roku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.